Hello and welcome to Bread and Rosaries, a podcast about the UK, Christianity and the left. I'm Ben Molyneux-Hetherington and my pronouns are he, him. Joining me as always, the Kamala Harris to my Joe Biden is Adam Spears, whose pronouns oh my, are also what? he, him. No, Hi, no. Adam. That, that is great. What are you talking about? <laughs> How dare you? That is monstrous. Wow. I feel, see, see, you don't want to be a woman. That's uh, pretty revealing. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Joining us this week to make our already extremely autistic podcast even more autistic is the lovely Rachel Sales. Rachel, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Rachel. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a PhD student in digital health. And I'm also autistic, like they said, 50% more autism this time, which is great. And I'm asexual. And I'm a Methodist, and I gather that you've not had many Methodists before. Yeah, well, we try to keep Methodists sort of at an arm's length, to be honest, away from the podcast. Well, hmm. thanks, thanks for I'm... laughing there, guys. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just make I me look that... like a complete dick. <laughs> I can... It's fine. I can potentially pass as an Anglican on occasion because I'm a singer. So I'm used to oh. I'm used to being a chorister. Oh, you merge into the crowd then. Occasionally. But yeah, I'm a Methodist from a United Reformed Church family who pretends to be an Anglican chorister and is in a choir that has sung at Scottish Episcopalian and Catholic churches, although I am very Protestant. Uh, well, you know, don't nobody's perfect. Don't beat yourself up about it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like all Anglicans, we know what we are, but we hate ourselves for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Peak self-loathing. That is how I feel about Methodism sometimes. Anytime someone reminds me that Thatcher was a Methodist. Oh. oh peak wow. self-loathing phase. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't stay a Methodist, though. It's just what turned her into who she became. <laughs> That's worse. <laughs> <laughs> I find Methodism quite a social justice denomination in that I feel that Methodist-specific yeah. beliefs lend themselves well to social justice. But then you get a lot of Methodist Tories. So I'm not sure where the message got lost. But once again, we are from the Tory party at prayer, so we are not here to judge. <laughs> the other thing I should add about Methodism is it's the denomination with no alcohol or gambling on church premises allowed ever. Which, like, I'm, I'm, I'm personally, I'm game with that, you know, like, yeah, uh, not a big fan of either of those things. But um, I think I yeah. might be downvoted by my Anglican co-conspirators. I personally don't drink. And by the sounds of it, there's no rules against doing illegal drugs on Methodist premises. So I'm on board. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not actually sure. It's a long time since I've seen the sheet. <laughs> Shall we kick off, as always, with our segment, What Else is on My Mind, Grapes? What else is on my mind, Grapes? And as my introduction indicated, something that is on our mind, Grapes, currently is the recent inauguration of Joseph R. Biden, Christian leftist. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Um, I don't want to go into too much depth about Biden. There are other American-based podcasts that that are doing that. But I am interested to talk a little bit about the reaction from us here in the UK to Joe Biden's ascension to the presidency. And the first thing that I wanted to talk about was how excited everyone was, as far as I can tell. There seemed to be a lot of people who were tuning in to watch the inauguration, a lot of people posting happy things on social media, and I just found it really strange. Because I live in Scotland most of the time. There's an extra angle to it in Scotland with people know what Trump's businesses look like. They don't want him or his golf courses. They're very happy to just see anything that puts down Trump in that sense. So it's, I think, at least with Scottish people I know, it's a reaction. Ha! Trump lost more than it's pro-Biden. Yeah, I think think that's probably, I I think you're probably right. You you probably see more of that in Scotland. But I think that's probably the general vibe of most people who, who are celebrating Biden's victory. 
I mean, I've been surprised by the kinds of people that I've seen sort of celebrating the inauguration because it's, you know, it's people who I've sort of thought, actually, I considered you to be a bit more left wing than that. You know, not that you would want Trump to win, but like you probably wouldn't celebrate Biden. But I think so much of it is just a relief that Trump's not there anymore, and which I kind of understand. You know, I didn't, I don't care for the inauguration personally obviously but i get that people are somewhat relieved yeah i have quite a few friends in the states and a lot of it at least for me was relief on behalf of them that being in a marginalized population in the states visits less of a chance you'll get legislated out of existence they'll still give it a go of course they'll give it a go but it's less likely under biden than under trump well, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that, that I found interesting was there's a, an angle that people haven't looked at a whole lot where, yeah, Biden is apparently not a big fan of Boris Johnson because of Boris Johnson's comments, old comments about um, Obama having a, an, an ancestral dislike for the British or something like that. And and it's interesting because obviously, yeah, but Joe Biden was the vice president under Obama, and that is a plainly racist thing to say. But it's also like not like Biden has much of a leg to stand on in terms of like his his track record on race. No, it's not fantastic. And I do also I find it uncomfortable to celebrate Biden, a man with multiple credible rape and sexual assault allegations against him. Yeah. Yes. You know, again, I am very happy to see the back of Donald Trump, but the idea that this is a more morally upstanding individual in the role of presidency, I think is a little bit suspect. Yeah. And I do, yeah. I feel sad for the, the women who have, you know, been, been assaulted by Biden, probably, I think I legally have to say, having to watch a bunch of people that at least make noises about being on their side and wanted to look after women, yeah. celebrate their abuser. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Rachel, you mentioned about marginalised communities and then feeling a little bit safer. One of the marginalised communities that will feel a little bit safer in the States is the trans community because Joe Biden, on I think his first day, uh, put through an executive order basically guaranteeing trans rights in a way that kind of matches up mostly with what the Equality Act does in the UK, which is obviously a very good thing and that of course means that a bunch of british turfs absolutely lost their minds oh i have plenty to say on this subject but i should preface this by saying that in my free time i play and referee the sport of quidditch which is a sport with a rule book that is actively gender inclusive we have a lot of trans non-binary players We've actively been seeking to distance ourselves from J.K. Rowling as a result of this, because a lot of Quidditch players have very negative things to say about her transphobia. So especially the rules on trans athletes and then seeing Hadley Freeman et al. go, but this, you're losing women on day one. It's like, no, you're not necessarily going far enough but at least people might stand a chance of be able to play a sport which one of the things i like about quidditch is that for us gender is self-identified obviously we don't test hormone levels or anything your gender is what you say it is and that's what we account for the gender rule and that's enabled so many people who hadn't found a sports environment where they could be accepted as they are to play a sport and people trying to push back against that it's like right do you do you want people to do exercise do you like children participating in sports oh no apparent apparently you don't apparently you just all you care about is wombs that's really it wombs and your constructed nature of womanhood that is incredibly white and heterosexual, amongst other things, and obviously painfully cisnormative. I feel like I can't, it's really, I really love that Quidditch is such an inclusive sport. But also, I feel like we can't really move on from this without saying, 
You play Quidditch? What? Yeah, full contact mixed gender sport. And the magic comes from where? The PVC pipes we use as brooms and the fact <laughs> that you can rugby tackle anyone one-handed based on your position. That that does sound magical, to be fair. Completely regardless of gender. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty upset that you're involved in something like that. That's obviously a, you know, a, a sport with a politics very far away from our own. Um, I obviously only play rugby, which is a sport with perfect <laughs> politics at all times. <laughs> I'm going to be controversial here and actually yank us back to the subject we were talking about previously, maybe four or five conversation topics ago, which was about (laughs) Turfs and Joe Biden. And I just wanted to say really quickly that I think what's really revealing about it is the subtext to all the Turfs about this, which is bluntly, actually, our politics were better served by having Donald Trump in the White House. Mm. Yes. And I think if that doesn't tell you something, <laughs> then maybe self-reflection isn't isn't something you're particularly good at. Well, how much do you know about work TERFs have done with America and specifically some of British transphobia's links to the Heritage Foundation of the States? Uh, not loads. So please enlighten us. I can't remember the full extent of it, but Posey Parker, at least, has been to the States and met with people from a Heritage Foundation. I think they might have had some funding, but some of the American groups that TERFs work with are very, very right-wing, conservative, Christian, traditional family groups. You can see shades of this in the LGB alliance in the UK, the notoriously transphobic group that just ends up being straight-up homophobic as well a lot of the time. But a lot of it all stems back over there. That's where they get a lot of the crowdfunding money from. You, you sort of end up wondering, I mean, even even like TERF, trans-exclusionary radical feminist, like uh, when you see all these links, you sort of wonder where the radical feminism actually comes in. Um because, I mean, there clearly radical starts to be ra- radical from the other side, you know? It's, yeah, a lot to do with the history of the mm. feminist movement and history of trans-exclusionary feminism and the history of radical feminism as a movement, both separate to and including the transphobic mm-hmm. element. And it's partially that TERFs broke off from ra- or are part of radical feminism as a whole And that's where the name comes from, because those were the beliefs that they thought they were espousing when they were being transphobic. There's a lot of history there, but especially as an asexual person, certain segments of the Internet love to try and exclude ace and arrow people and claim that you're not really LGBT enough. And then that's actually quite often a slippery slope to transphobia. The groups suggesting that are quite often turf groups. Yeah, I can believe that. Yeah, sadly, it doesn't doesn't surprise me at all. So something that's been on my mind grapes is an article that appeared in The Guardian by Fergus Butler Galley, who is a Church of England clergyman and an author. And the piece was originally in a publication called The Fence. The Guardian version is quite interesting because he's talking about how the Church of England has traditionally been seen as the Tory party at prayer, but it's basically not been that since the 80s. And that's interesting because even in last the last episode of, of this podcast, we were sort of talking around the edges of how that may and may not be true. But his article is saying, well, basically, the Church of England has been if not at war with the Tories since the 80s, then actively trying to pick up the pieces and not being very happy about having to do so. And and there's some truth to that, because, of course, you've got the infamous um, report in, in the 80s about Thatcher's government that the House of Bishops released, which is called Faith in the City. And that really um, was seen as very critical of the Thatcher government. And then there was another one in 2015, I think, that was in a similar vein called Who is Our Neighbour? So this article is talking about how the Church of England basically can't keep up with the need now because Tory policies have created such poverty and such dire straits for people that there's just too much. There's too much. And the church is on the, well, it's, it's, decreasing in number fairly rapidly and that means that it can't do what the Tories want it to do but what's really interesting about this for me is he talks about 
where a lot of this came from. A lot of it came from William Temple, who was the sort of left-leaning Archbishop of Canterbury from 1942 until his death two years later in 1944. And he had this idea of the church as being something that was addressing some of the social issues that, that were present at the time. But he also had alongside that this idea that the state needed to take up these ways of doing things as well. So a good friend of his was um, William Beveridge, which, yeah, is, you know, tells tells us a lot about his his way of doing things. So, yeah, so you've ended up with the Church of England still working in this kind of tradition, but really not being able to do what it what it wants to do or what it should be doing. Yeah, I think it comes up with this really interesting idea, and it's something that we've hit on before about the catch-22 that the Church of England finds itself in, in that mm-hmm. it's not going to say, no, we won't help the poor and needy, but it's ended up operating something akin to a kind of second welfare state, hiding the failings of the actual welfare state that is looking increasingly porous. Yeah. Yes. And for a certain extent, that's true with churches together groups as well. Absolutely. At least in the area I'm from. The work for Churches Together group has done in the local community and in supporting food banks, so for instance. Yeah, it's a common story amongst churches everywhere, really, isn't it? In, at least in this country. And, it, and as you say, or as you hint at, it's, it is something that he um, addresses in, in his article, that there is this idea that um, the way the Church of England does it is perhaps slightly more political than the way other churches and other groups do it, because it is seen as being a lot closer to the state. And one of the things that he points out is that the bishops have fairly consistently voted against the Tory reforms to welfare and and that kind of thing, which ends up with Tory MPs basically writing various articles and and shouting that the the church doesn't belong in, in politics, which I agree with. Um, <laughs> just uh, from a slightly different angle, I guess. Yeah, I think something that I think about is there is a local Churches Together group near where I am that runs a night shelter in, in a big town. And that's a really fantastic thing. So all through the winter, people who are homeless can go and stay in a night shelter rather than being out on the streets where the low temperatures offer a genuine risk to their lives. That's a really good thing, and that can only be positive. But And I do keep going on about this because it's so important. Last year, we ended street homelessness. At the start of the COVID pandemic, in the UK, we stopped street homelessness with a click of a finger from the government. And then we restarted it because we are a deeply immoral and degenerate country, in short. And it asks serious questions about, okay, you're running a night shelter, that's really good. But the fact you're doing that hides the fact that it is entirely plausible for the government to end street homelessness, and it refuses to do so, and you are covering for that. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't be running night shelters because it's literally saving people's lives. Obviously, that's a very good thing. But inevitably, you're almost playing into the government's hands in some ways because you're covering for for their failures. Jesus weeps for Gaza. He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi and a whole range of Christian churches. 
we urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The Very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says, I warmly welcome the newly formed group Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. To find details of local actions or to join the Christian bloc at a national march, follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook or email christiansforpalestineuk at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. Yeah, that's it. And I, and I think that's the really important takeaway is that not only for night shelters and churches, but, but also for any charitable work, that how you go about that, how you do that charity is actually really important because it shouldn't be, you know, as a charity, you shouldn't be self-perpetuating really what you should be doing is working for a time when um, actually you don't need to exist exactly and also you just have to be aware kind of of what strings are attached to the charity because my one worry on reading about the night shelters is is this definitely queer inclusive we're not going to pull a salvation army here are we we have to make sure that we're actually not attaching conditions to the charity in a way. And I think that queer inclusiveness is super important when you consider that there is a not inconsiderable proportion of people who are vulnerably housed and street homeless who have ended up that way because they're running from queer phobic family homes. So I think, yeah, if you're going to be dealing with these problems, then you absolutely need to be a no-strings-attached approach. And I think the other thing that you see a bit, and I think you saw it most prominently when David Cameron started to describe this stuff using his big society rhetoric, and I saw a lot of Christians start to talk about what an opportunity this was. And it was very clearly an opportunity to evangelize to people. Yes. Because frankly, it's pretty gross to be like, oh, lots more people are going to be going hungry. Lots more people will be out on the streets. What a fantastic opportunity. That is not an appropriate response to that situation. But I do think you see that because putting it really bluntly, vulnerable people are more open to trading religious affiliation for basic support needs. Yes. And you see that to a certain extent with evangelical groups in a way the work of university christian unions although not directly comparable things like people helping people after nightclubs on a night out comes from a slightly similar mindset you can get it but you've got to get the information about our evangelical christianity as well yeah and i think sort of looking back at something we were talking about last week you know this is where those who are doing this kind of work actually need to be working to be a thorn in the side, not to be collaborators, but to actually be um, someone who politicians actually don't want to meet, don't want to work with. And I know that can make things a bit more difficult in, in the short term, but what it should be doing is making things a whole lot better in the long term. So for our main topic this week, we wanted to start to broach a bit of the subject of autism, both within society at large and within the church. We're doing this quite controversially by having actually autistic people talk about autism, which is not the traditional way of approaching things. We're subverting expectations. Normally, it's only holistic people, which for the holistic people out there means non-autistic. We're subverting those expectations by having only autistic people talking about this today. I'm just surprised that as a podcast, we haven't decided to collaborate with Autism Speaks. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to take the one, Rachel, or shall I? You you cannot tell the face I am pulling right now. Do not be seer, Adam. Do not be seer. Yeah, quite indeed. So for people who aren't aware, 
the musician Sia started to advertise her film last year, Music, and it very quickly became clear that Sia decided to make a film about an autistic person without ever having spoken to, met, or considered, even for a second, real autistic people, and then was just an absolute horror on social media, basically talking over and talking down the autistic people who said, hey, maybe you shouldn't make this film as super ableist as it obviously is. And then, it's actually, I don't know if it's come out yet or it's coming out soon, but it has been getting pretty crap reviews. Yeah, it, The Guardian gave it two stars. I haven't seen any other reviews yet, but all the ones I've heard have been negative. Yeah. There's two more things I should note about Sia. When she's collaborating with Autism Speaks, I think it should be mentioned here that a lot of autistic people consider Autism Speaks to be a hate group. Yeah. That's right. They are a major US charity, charity very much in quotes, who don't listen to autistic people and have done some blatantly ableist stuff in the past. But the SEER thing gets worse. I'm going to add a content warning here, a content warning for death and for abuse. There are scenes in SEER's film where the protagonist has a meltdown And the response to this meltdown is to put her in a prone restraint position. I think it might happen twice, but I'm not completely sure. There's footage going around, but it's disturbing. Prone restraint kills people. Teenagers, I think most cases I've heard of especially, have died because people are pressing them into the ground. And when these kids say, I can't breathe, they don't believe them because they're talking. And this is how autistic people have died. And she's promoting this as a thing. And that's just deeply dangerous. That's beyond ableist into actively harmful and dangerous. And obviously it relates to the way in which obviously black people and people of colour die in police custody significantly more often than white people in this country. But also neurodiverse people are also at severe risk. And obviously neurodiverse people of colour are even more so of dying in police custody because of things related to those sorts of restraint techniques and because of the ableism that enables you to kind of ignore autistic people saying, this is very dangerous to me, I can't breathe, all that sort of thing. And I should also note here that the stereotype of autism is white boys. It can be said that the diagnostic criteria for autism is focused on these white boys. And that's how people of colour and women often tend to slip through the cracks. Women of colour, obviously, most especially here, given that intersection. But from my experience as a white autistic woman who was diagnosed as a teenager, I managed to slip through the cracks quite a few times because the diagnostic criteria, what they expect when they look at as an autistic person doesn't fit with how I was as a child in some ways and it gets into a lot of gendered socialization but the way girls are expected to socialize basically enables a lot of masking and hiding autism basically you reach a point where you just can't hide anymore and then everything goes a bit wrong but it's an issue statistics suggest that far more men than women are autistic. This may sound weird coming from me as someone with a statistics background, but I personally believe that it's a pretty even split across genders. There is one interesting study finding about autism that reflects kind of real life knowledge, which is that LGBTQ plus people are more likely to be autistic and autistic people in turn are more likely to be LGBTQ plus. This may partially be perceptions of gender, Oh, sexuality, but the fact is you have these queer autistic people and to continue the tangent slightly further, if you're trans and autistic and you have that autism diagnosis, that can be a red flag. They can go, oh, this could be a reason to deny you access to hormones. Doesn't always happen, but trans neurodivergent people do have harder time accessing gender affirming treatment as a result of then your divergence yeah i think it's probably important at this point for for adam and i to briefly kind of situate ourselves i think most of the listeners of the podcast are aware but we are both cishet white men who are autistic so we are obviously speaking of a position of 
kind of of knowledge, lived knowledge when it comes to autism, but we're also speaking from a position of relative privilege in some of our experiences of that autism. Yes, and I should preface this again by saying that I am also cis. I realised I forgot to mention that, but I am very much a cis woman. Yeah, so I think this is one of the areas where intersectionality can be really helpful for us because... You know, it's already difficult enough as someone who is a cis, het, white man. I was diagnosed as autistic at the age of 29, which is very late. And I think a lot of that is because my autism didn't necessarily correspond to a lot of the stereotypes that people have of autism. Um, So it kind of went unnoticed. But the thing is, that is really common in women and girls. And that is a really, really important point. And part of the reason we wanted to get uh, you, Rachel, on, on the podcast was to have a look at this issue of of autism diagnosis in women and girls, because it is such a massive issue, particularly as you, as you mentioned, when you're looking at the statistics. Yes. So my experience of diagnosis as an autistic woman, I'm aware was might be slightly different to some people because I very much got access to diagnosis through the school I was at at the time and the disability support there at this state comprehensive. My old comp at the time I was there had the reputation for having some of the best disability support in the county and I don't know for sure but it wouldn't surprise me if I got pushed up some waiting lists a bit. Once you get seen it's a lot easier But a lot of autism diagnosis appointments very much focus on what were you like as a child? A lot of it is development and talking to parents, which can be another accessibility issue if you're not going through this process with parents. I honestly can't remember much about getting diagnosed. I just remember kind of the sense of relief, the, oh, this makes sense, kind of the sinking in of this is me and this makes sense to me. I suppose the closest comparable feeling was me figuring out that I was asexual in the sense of greater understanding of self, really. But when it comes to autistic women as a whole, if people are looking out for autism, they often just won't spot because a lot of the so-called special interests they're looking for are like, ah, boy likes trains. And it's like, oh, you like a boy band? Lots of teenage girls like boy bands. The interests tend to be things that would be considered more societally acceptable. And indeed, as someone who is involved with fandom, a lot of my interests have actually been fandoms I've been involved with. And this is stuff that doesn't pass as unusual. There's a certain amount of passing and masking and, oh, this is, you can just about manage to fit in with a group. You may still be kind of weird. Like, I keep thinking of a Tumblr post that says, if you want to find out who the neurodivergent people are, just ask your class of nine-year-olds who the weirdest kids are that they'd like to bully. Take the top two. You'll probably find some autism. Yeah, one one of the things I want to pick up on there as well, Rachel, is, you know, we're talking about some of the things that people can say to autistic people perhaps in response to finding out or being told that they're autistic. And that is a big thing for a lot of autistic people. So quite often, I will encounter people saying to me some variant of, well, you don't seem very autistic. And that is a very, very common thing. And I, yeah, I don't know if either of you two want to talk about that or or have any others that people say, but I do think it's, it's an important topic because a lot of neurotypical people don't actually realise some of the damage that that does. Also, that phrase and the other one people bring out, which is everyone's a little bit autistic. Oh, I hate that so much. <laughs> I, I hate that. Phrase. Yes. The combination of those two phrases, it's like, so what do you expect autism to look like? What, what do you think it is? If you think we don't look autistic. I was once told by an holistic person on Facebook that they knew more about autism than I did because they had a four-year-old autistic nephew. I was sat there like I've had over 20 years of existing as an autistic person. Who has the most knowledge about what it's like to be autistic? Yeah, we could probably talk for a while about get onto the topic of autism mums as well because that's a, that's a fun <laughs> one. <laughs> um, do you want to tell us what an autism mum is, Rachel? Oh, an autism mum. <laughs> Terrible. 
American accent necessary because they are mostly autism moms, not autism mums. They are the women. Their life is all about their precious little autistic soldier child. They like puzzle pieces because they want all the pieces to fit. They'd probably quite like a cure. They think their child is so limited, they might post pictures of them having a meltdown on the internet. They also, and that's kind of, this is really the crucial tenet of an awesome mum. What they think is the most important. If an adult autistic says to them, oh, but we don't do this, saying this is actually really harmful. They'll go, oh, but you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to be living with autism like I do. That's the key part of it for them. Yeah, and I think as well, there's a big element of there's a, a martyr complex a lot of the time in it. Yeah, a martyr complex and a hero complex. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and I think there's something particularly grim about the way that their identity is so much more important than their child's identity yeah and it's all about what the child's experience of autism means for them it's never about what the experience of the child is and you know it's it's really really aggravating when you see an autism mum out in the wild i think it's important to say one that not all parents of autistic children are autism mums and two, I think we should probably recognise that there is a lot going on in terms of the gendering yeah. of autism mums yeah. yes. uh, that we probably don't have that much time to unpack, but is simultaneously influenced to an extent by a sexist approach towards women, but also is recognition that these people are almost always female caregivers yeah. because of the role that they're expected to play societally. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose you can also link that to Karen's, at least in a more recent time. And obviously the anti-vax movement, which feels like something that could be gone into a lot of depth. Because in a way, if you're an autism mom and you you had your kid vaccinated and they're autistic, for some anti-vaxxers, that's basically the fail state because a lot of the anti-vax movement is hatred of autism. Yeah. If we're talking about not respecting autistic views, there's you should note here that we're mostly saying autistic people. There are two primary ways of referring to autistic people. You have so-called person first, which is person with autism, and you have identity first, which is autistic person. A lot of psychology and psych textbooks and allistics and neurotypicals in general very heavily favour person-first language. Say, oh, person with autism is the only right way. We want to separate the person from their autism. Being the person is more important than being the autism. They will often speak over autistic people about this. This belief is not universally held among autistic people. But the vast majority of autistic people prefer identity first language because as autistic people, our autism can't be separated from us. It's an intrinsic part of ourselves and our being, and we don't want to take it away. Yeah, and I think that is super important that there is not a version of Ben that is not autistic any more than there is a version of Ben that is, I don't know, just a totally different person in any other way, you know my autism is an essential part of who I am. It has conditioned the way I see the world, respond to the world and exist in the world since before I could even think about what that meant. So as soon as we start talking about cures, what you're talking about is eradicating me as a person, eradicating all three of us as people. I think people are often shocked when they hear we do not want to cure autism. We are against, even if it were possible, which I very much doubt it is, even if it were possible, it would be a bad thing to do. I think people can be shocked by that, but it's about it's an attempt to eradicate who we are as people. And I think it's really important that actually I'm not just someone who struggles with being autistic or someone who fights with autism in their life. I am proudly autistic that is who i am as a person and i embrace that and learn to live with that as much as i do any other aspect of my character 
Yeah, and I think a really important thing to kind of think about here is that a lot of this stuff comes from the fact that we've had so long of autism being treated as a pathology rather than as a neurotype. Um, And I think that's something that um, most autistic people really want to get across is that it's not that there's something wrong with you. We're not ill. It's just that our brains are fundamentally wired in a different way. And that's good, actually. So yeah, very important to think of it as just a neurotype, another kind of brain. Yeah, I think I personally see my autism and my sexuality in quite similar ways, because often you get a lot of quite similar criticisms. The robot references for one, and there's a certain amount of pathologizing of asexuality. And as someone who didn't realize her own sexuality for a long time because autistic people and disabled people as a whole are treated as desexualized beings. It's very much this is a part of you and the way people respond to that tends to be quite similar. It's like, oh, but you can't be like that. That's weird and you're not weird. And it's existing in a way outside the framework of this heterosexual neurotypical society. Anyway, the other point I was going to make related to this is there's another similarity between sexuality and autism, and that's conversion therapy. Conversion therapy, everyone knows about conversion therapy. The number of people who do not know about what could effectively be called autistic conversion therapy, ABA, or Applied Behavioral Analysis, is a type of therapy that some parents of autistic kids are told to put their kids into for hours and hours a week. It's a great way to get a traumatized adult at the end of it. You may think, ah, oh, this doesn't sound like conversion therapy. It's it's literally conversion therapy. It comes from the ideas of either love us. The guy who created conversion therapy is effectively the guy who created ABA. It all comes down to the same base concept of rebuilding the person as something societally acceptable as a straight neurotypical. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when we talk about neurotypes, as Adam does, what you're essentially doing is exactly the same, right? If we if we say that sexuality is, at least to an extent, something inherent to a person, I don't want to put all the cards on that, but there's at least, you know, it is bad to attempt to change someone's sexuality through coercive means, then exactly the same thing applies to attempting to change someone's neurotype by coercive means. And I think, you know, we have to be realistic that in much the same way as conversion therapy is, ABA is a form of torture for autistic people. It is an attempt to make them live in a way that is incompatible with who they really are. Yeah. But also the problem is that ABA is so widespread, people don't tend to know what it is and why it's bad. I should add that this is not actually part of ABA, but we live in a world where autistic young people can receive electroshock therapy and be electrocuted still. Because I don't think they closed the JRC down yet. I know there was talk of them closing the JRC down. The JRC is the Judge Rodenberg Centre in the USA and autistic teenagers there can be given electric shocks. That's what they do to autistic people in the 21st century. One thing about existing as an autistic woman is that you didn't see many autistic women all these autistic famous autistic people these famous autistic characters 90% of them are men I say 90% because Temperance Brennan from Bones exists and we're talking about 10 years ago now but as you come through time you get this better representation but you do also get more openly autistic women and like I'm deeply protective of Greta Thunberg because I see who she is and what she's done She's just existing in the world as an autistic person and changing the world through being her autistic self. And a lot of the reaction to her is quite symptomatic of the reaction to autistic people as a whole. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen all of her documentary, but I saw part of it on the BBC. And it was very, very interesting to see just like, this is us. This is how we are. 
she's existing and she's doing a great job one of the things that i really like about her is that you know she takes things that are stereotypically autistic i'm thinking about you know having a really strong special interest that you're really keen and know lots and lots about not caring too much about what other people think of you and kind of being prepared to to stick out from the crowd and that kind of particularly the idea you get of you know basically autistic people ranting about things they're interested in to other people and she basically takes all of those things owns them to an extent and uses them to fuel her activism you know and i think that is a really you know powerful thing to see happening yeah and i do like her autistic sarcasm as well yes recognition that autistic people can be really sarcastic is always a good thing did we all see her brutally own donald trump with her tweets again yeah <laughs> joyous stuff she is on point on twitter she is absolutely fantastic she is. but that was one of the things that angered me i mean there's many many things wrong with the spitting image revival yeah but what they did with greta thunberg it's just right you're making fun of an autistic teenage girl. At that point, it was, you're making fun of an autistic child? Like, there was a lot wrong here anyway. And it's not just, you are making fun of an autistic child for being an autistic child. Exactly. And at that point, maybe consider you're a Yeah, you are. <laughs> I do have many conflicted opinions about Anne Hegarty because she's a transphobe who said some racist things thinking mostly of her Twitter spat with BTS fans. But I can't deny that I do feel some kind of way when I see her on TV going, oh, but, but I'm like, it's because I'm autistic. Yeah. This is just me existing as an autistic person. And it's just, in some ways, she is really not a great person. But people seeing that, just efforts for normalisation. I didn't realise who Anne Hegarty was. She's the governess on The Chase. My family watches The Chase religiously. <laughs> I've just looked her up. I just looked her up. I had no idea it was her. She always reminds me of Miss Trunchbull. She's got the same kind of stern kind of... She dresses. Yeah, yeah. Power suit kind of angry vibe going on. Her persona is that. But there's a... Because she was on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And she was also... um, There's a Chase spinoff that some of the Chase is going on a road trip. Partially discussing intelligence stuff. I wasn't fully paying attention to all of last night's episode because I was watching TV with a friend for half of it. But there was a lot of just, they go to a line dancing club and she's like, yeah, I'm autistic and sometimes we have sensory issues and I'm not dealing well with the noise, so I'm just going to sit and do a puzzle. And there's just a lot of kind of casual autism. I think that's something really important and interesting to to talk about. So I have always had sensory issues, but I've never really known that or known what they are. A lot of people, even growing up, um, will encounter that in a child and sort of intuitively try and force children to do something that they do not want to do or feel very uncomfortable doing or, or even that hurts them. Yeah. So, for example... I am not a big one for crowds. I'm not a big one for discos, that kind of thing. Fucking hell. You called it a disco. That tells us everything we need to know about your attitude towards nightlife. I, was, I, was, I wasn't talking about clubbing. I was talking about, like, you know, when, uh, when I was a kid and, like, I don't know, when they had school discos and that kind of thing. But, yeah, cl- clubbing counts as well, right? So, like, I don't like that stuff, really. And a lot of that is that it's just a very overwhelming experience for me. And I, it's very makes me very, very uncomfortable. It makes me very, very self-conscious. And, you know, I had adults try and force me to participate in, like, dancing kind of things when I was when I was a kid at youth groups and stuff and and that is yeah that's just stop it (laughs) you know like that's not okay it's not okay yeah on that note I think I'm going to draw us to a close Rachel thank you so much for joining us it has been an absolute pleasure you are welcome to come back and be the 50% more autistic element of the podcast anytime you'd like I'd be more than happy to Rachel, where in the world can we find you if people want to hear more from you? Well, I've 
I've got an academic Twitter if you're interested in wearable technology and chronic conditions or more academic takes on autism. You can find me on Twitter at RachelSales55, the 55 being numbers. If you're more interested in leftist politics, a really large dose of fandom and yelling about ice hockey, you can find me at FT Chocoholic. Lots of those, basically, um, on Twitter. Brilliant. You can find the podcast in all your usual podcast feedy places. You can find us at facebook.com slash bread and rosaries. We are on Twitter at bread underscore rosaries. And you can email us bread and rosaries at gmail.com. Do feel free to get in touch to ask questions or shout at us or explain how you do see Adam as a sexual being and would like to proposition him. (laughs) (laughs) All propositions welcome. (laughs) Uh, Adam, where in the world can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at XIAN, and in exciting news, I'm also now on TikTok at XIAN. so uh, go find me there as well. I've said it before and I'll say it again, you are too old to be on TikTok. I absolutely am, and I don't care. You can find me on Twitter at Molino, that's M-O-L-O-N-O, and you shouldn't follow me because I'll just be being annoyingly autistic. (laughs) Thank you very much, everyone. It's been an absolute pleasure, and we will see you all next time. Cheers. See you next time. See you next time, or whenever I appear.